Hello, and welcome to Generative Now. Uh, If you're just tuning in for the first time, this is a podcast where we talk to the builders who are creating the world's most exciting AI products and companies. We get their perspectives on how AI will impact the world we all live in today, right now, and in the future. I am your host, Michael Magnano. I am a partner at Lightspeed. We are a global venture capital firm that was one of the earliest investors in companies like Snap, Affirm, Nest, Grubhub, Giphy, and many others. And we've been active investors in AI companies for years, having invested over $1 billion across more than 50 AI native companies. Today, we've got Max Child, co-founder and CEO of Volley, one of the world's largest, if not the largest, voice and AI-powered gaming platforms. Max and I go way back, but this conversation covered new ground even for me. We got into the role that AI plays in Volley's products and games today, but also what it's going to be doing in the very near future Things like personalized characters in games, personalized content, generative content, and you know what? I'm just going to let Max explain it to you himself. So without further ado, here's Max Child, co-founder and CEO of Volley. Max, good to see you. Good to see you, Mike. Yes, yes. Um, so I, I've, I've been excited for this conversation for a while. Obviously, um, well, not obvious to the audience, but you and I have known each other for many, many years now. And I think that your story is very, very fascinating. And I think the story of the company you're building is is very fascinating and very interesting in the context of AI. Um, and, I'm, and I'm sure we're going to get into all that. Uh, but I think to set the stage, I, what I what I like to do with these is, is go all the way back, uh, maybe even even back before the max that I know, uh, and, and, and go into the early years, like give us, give us little max, give us like the early days and, and leading into your entry into tech and, and maybe your, your, your rest, your brief uh, career as a restaurant critic and, and you can go from there. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that this will surprise no one, uh, who knows me, but I was a huge nerd in, in all levels of school, uh, elementary, middle and high school. Um, I, I basically did my homework and, and, you know, nothing else. And, you know, contextually for this podcast, I also did a fair amount of, you know, video gaming on my, my consoles at home when my parents would let me. Um, and so, yeah, I basically, I basically just studied and worked hard. I had the most uninteresting childhood, uh, the nerdiest childhood imaginable, but, uh, I was, uh, I was very into computers as you would expect. And, and, um, in particular for me, the sort of like big moment of my uh, computing life was when my parents let me get um, a MacBook for college, right? It was like a big deal. It was like, there was the black one, you know, the Darth Vader one, you know, classic Steve Jobs. And so, yeah, I got, I got that Mac and then I went to college and I, I had become a huge Apple nerd and obsessive and I would watch every keynote, right? And the second big moment, as you would expect, was the 2007 Macworld keynote where, you know, he, Steve Jobs pulls the iPhone out of his pocket and like many people, I was just like, holy crap, like that is, that is the absolute future. That is what I need that immediately. That is what I want to work on. You know, um, I, I can't believe that exists. It really feels five years ahead. Um, maybe going back. Cause this, this, this is like, this is actually becoming a theme in this podcast. It feels like everyone I talk to is like, yeah, I was into video games um, and, and <laughs> I was course. into video games of as course. well. Yeah. Um, what games, what consoles, 
you know, which ones did you really get addicted to? Especially, this is especially relevant for you yeah, because right. you run a gaming company. I run a game company. I would say I peaked in the N64 PlayStation 2 kind of crossover era. I would say like the N64 was probably the most important console of my life, you know, getting that for Christmas one year. Um, I mean, I played GoldenEye with my friends nice. probably for like a couple hundred hours. Obviously, you know, Mario Kart. I mean, my favorite game of all time is probably The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time, which was the iconic N64 Zelda. I probably played that through fully like four or five times, like including like 100%ing it with like the Nintendo Power, you know, so you could like get all the secret swords and wow. stuff, right? Yeah. Oh, the um, magazine. Yeah, the like magazine. You, yeah, the magazine. Oh, wow. that, you know, the strategy guide that told you how to get all the cool stuff, right? Because that was pre-internet, like gaming forums and everything. Um, and let everyone know, where, where did you grow up? Where were you doing this? Pasadena, California, Southern California suburb. Um, maybe like America's original suburb in some ways. Anytime you see like a minivan ad on linear television, it's 90% chance it's filmed in Pasadena uh, because it just looks, quote unquote, like American suburbs are supposed to look because it's next to Hollywood, right? So um, yeah, I mean, I grew up in the the suburbiest of suburban suburbs with you know two, two lawyer parents. So you you sort of video game your way through childhood and and high school and and you study and it sounds like you got uh, good grades. Uh, th th then what? Uh, yeah, then I went to college. Um, I actually met my current co-founder at college, James. Um, we were both we both like realized pretty early that we weren't that into college classes. We, I don't know for whatever reason, and we decided to devote our entire lives to the newspaper. Um, and so I actually spent. 60 hours a week at the newspaper starting in like my junior and senior years and pretty much didn't go to class for like a year and a half. Um, kind of a famous and, college. Newspaper. Yeah. Yeah. The Harvard Crimson, like the daily newspaper, probably, I mean, we believe it's the best newspaper in the college newspaper industry, obviously. I'm sure other people would disagree. Um, a lot of legendary people work there, you know, work at New York times today, wall street journal, a lot of tech founders, actually, um, Parker Conrad at Rippling, huh. Andy Jassy at Amazon, Crimson People, Steve Ballmer. Um, Did you overlap with any other notable tech figures at the you know who also had a stint at the Crimson? Um, Jess Lesson, who runs the information, was like a year or two ahead of me. Um, May Habib, actually, who just raised like $100 million for an AI startup, it was like a year or two ahead of me. Um, I don't think there was any... I mean, Eric Newcomer, of course, the, uh, the number one tech tech journalist, tech journalist in Silicon Valley was working with me at the newspaper. Um, I'm sure I'm missing some, but there's, there's a bunch. It's a very high agency group of people because you pretty much devote your life to putting on a daily newspaper on a college campus with, a you know, 500 people who don't get paid. So Harvard Crimson, uh, you're working on the paper, you meet this guy, James, you know, that he goes on to become your co-founder, but a bunch of stuff I think happens in between there. Is that right? Yeah. Well, he and I, I mean, James is one of the most creative people I've ever met. So if you ever take James out for a drink, he'll like pitch you 20 startup ideas, including like today when he already has a startup. <laughs> so, so <laughs> he and I would hang out at, at college a little bit. And then after college, uh, we were both working in New York and kind of hated our jobs. And so we would go out doing to, what? Uh, we were in consulting and finance, like again, kind of the most boring jobs imaginable. Um, and, uh, <laughs> And, and we would go out to dinner and sort of lament how much we hated our jobs. And, and he would pitch like 20 ideas to me and we'd, I'd like write them down on napkins or whatever. And, uh, you know, 
one time we got very excited about working on like every 22 year old about a dating app idea. So of course we like went home and we convinced our one friend who knew how to code because we weren't really very good at coding, like, Hey, let's build a dating app. And so we would stay up dating website. I'm sorry. We didn't have apps at the time. Uh, <laughs> really? I mean, not, not apps that were prominent yet. Back so, in my day. Yeah, yeah exactly. Dating website. <laughs> everything's called an app now. Uh, and we, so we'd build a dating website on, you know, Saturdays and Sundays with our one friend who could code. And James and I realized pretty quickly that we couldn't code. And so we weren't that useful in this construction of the dating app that never launched. So we tried to do marketing for it and a couple other things, but you know, it kind of just fell apart and, you know, nights and weekends. And, and when you're not sleeping at all, is not that effective. Um, what, what, what is the dating? I mean, at this point, like what is the unique, it feels like every dating app needs a sort of unique twist on it. Right. Right. Well, so James's pitch to me, and this is going to sound hilarious because he was like, you get one match per day and there's a countdown timer on top and you have 24 hours to check in on the match and see if you want to talk to each other. And if you do, we'll like, you know, set up a chat or an email or whatever between you, which people will recognize is exactly the pitch for Coffee Meets Bagel, <laughs> which launched like two years later uh, and, and, you know, had had moderate success. But James's concepts were always built around some kind of gamification element, some kind of like there had to be some like hook, right. That, that would be exciting. Some urgency. Or, and, and, yeah. Some urgency, some excitement. And so, you know, this daily countdown timer was, you know, scarcity was turning this dating into a game. Right. Um, and so we tried that. Um, we didn't launch, but we were like, this is, uh, this is fun. This is a lot more fun than our jobs. Um, and so, uh, a year later, um, I, I had gone to business school for a year and still was sort of like not feeling great about the future of being a, a middle manager in some giant corporation. And he was still in, in consulting. And um, and we were like, hey, like that was pretty fun. When we worked on that app together. Like, uh, should we just do that? Uh, and we didn't really have an idea or anything. And and we were like, yeah, like so I convinced him to move out to California. Oh, so you had moved to California. I had moved to California for business school. Yeah. Um, OK, so you left the consulting gig. I left the consulting, went to business school was also, you know, continually kind of depressed about, um, yeah, as I said, like my probably best option at that point would have been like a middle manager at, at Amazon or Google or something. Um, and I just didn't feel like that was very creative or inspiring, um, or, or fun or interesting, or, I mean, we love building products and, uh, I didn't feel like I was going to be able to do that with my life, which was, which was kind of sad. Um, and so, yeah, I convinced him to move out to California for the summer. I was like, why don't we just work on some ideas together, get better at coding, um, and, you know, we'll see what happens. And so he moved out to California that I think it was um, June of 2013. Um, and, you know, we we both were really bad coders, um, really bad. <laughs> and so I was a I was a really bad iOS coder developer and he was a really bad back end developer. And so. Together, we made some really bad apps, uh, and, but we kind of loved it. Um, we were like, this is just so much more fun. Um, and when you're 24 or 25, I think we were at the time, we were like, you know, this is maybe our only chance to sort of like do something dumb and try to work on a product together and try to build something together and not be afraid of, of failure or losing our jobs. We already quit our jobs, you know, um, and we just sort of felt like, if we try to do this five or 10 years from now, there's going to be, you know, we're going to have family or kids or some job that we can't leave, or, or there's just gonna be some reason we can't do it. So it's like, it felt like the window was closing at age 25 to, um, to try something new. And so I chose not to go to back to business school. You know, he didn't, he didn't go back to his job and we just kind of like shacked up in an apartment for 
about three years and built iPhone apps uh, that nobody used basically and and paid the bills uh, by to your point doing other contract gigs on the side one of which for me was um being a part-time restaurant critic uh for our friends the infatuation uh, in yeah, San Francisco. Let, yeah yeah let's let's tell that story well you should tell that story um <laughs> maybe just for those who who don't know it maybe uh, explain what the infatuation is um and how you yeah how you became a restaurant critic and 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 how that fits into building iPhone apps because i think it's pretty interesting yeah i mean when I was in New York, uh, the one thing I liked outside of my job, which is like everyone in New York is eating and drinking essentially. And at the time there was this like cool website, you know, for millennials, which were the young people at the time, uh, myself included, uh, <laughs> that would write restaurant reviews from the perspective of like, you know, a 20 something person rather than from the perspective of the, you know, geriatrics that were writing the New York times restaurant reviews basically. Right. And, um, couple guys, obviously, you know, well, who ran that company, Chris and, and Andrew, um, one day they posted something on the website saying, you know, manifest destiny. Uh, the infatuation is expanding. We're going full time. Like email us if you, if you want to work for, for the infatuation. And I was like, yeah, I definitely want to work for the infatuation. I was like, I love the infatuation. It's like by far my favorite, you know, food website. And that's, I was geeking out about food. So, um, so I emailed them and, we met up actually at South by Southwest in Austin because we both happened to be in town and, you know, they, they, uh, took me to one of those like food truck trailers and, you know, we had a bunch of, um, you know, great, like beet fries and, you know, weird <laughs> IPAs from Austin and stuff. And, um, I guess I convinced them to like take a chance on me and let me write some sample restaurant reviews of San Francisco. Um, and, Thankfully, like I, I passed whatever test there was um, and started getting to write uh, part-time restaurant reviews and pay the bills that way, which it wasn't a lot of money, but it was more than zero, which is what I had been currently making working on iPhone apps with James. So um, so I, I wrote restaurant reviews for Infatuation for, for a couple of years. And then to your point about iPhone apps, we were while we were launching iPhone apps that no one used, we were getting pretty good at developing iPhone apps. Like we were like... I was getting to be a pretty decent iPhone, you know, iOS engineer, and James was getting to be a pretty decent backend engineer. Um, and so uh, I kept sort of pestering the uh, infatuation guys to let me rebuild uh, the infatuation iPhone app because um, <laughs> the previous version, I think, uh, was built by this guy. It. it was you built by this it. guy named Mike Mignano uh, and was built on. I don't think by your fault was building some crazy cross-platform framework, if yeah, I recall. You, I, I, yeah, I can tell the story. Yeah, you yeah, tell yeah. the story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'll tell this part of the story. Yeah, so 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 Chris and Andrew, the the founders of the Infatuation, great friends of mine, uh, had asked a uh, good friend of mine and I, Sean, a friend of mine, Sean, and I, uh, to build them an iPhone app. And yeah, this was early days of of, of iPhone app development. And we hadn't learned Objective-C or any of that. Um, I was mainly focused on the design, a little bit of coding. He was mostly focused on the coding. And the quickest way we could get to doing it was using this platform co called AppCelerator. Mm, yeah. Which was one of these early frameworks, which actually coincidentally came up in another one of these podcast episodes. Yeah, AppCelerator. Classic uh, iPhone people, stuff. People were using this stuff yeah. for sure. Um, because it just it, it it reduced the path and the time to, to launching an app. But... Um, but it was hard to maintain, especially as, you know, iOS, I guess, I guess became more robust. And, uh, this was around the time that you got involved. And I think you rightfully were like, Hey, we need to get off this code base. <laughs> um, so yeah, back to yeah. you. Well, yeah, I was a, I was, you know, again, since, since I got my first MacBook, I was a real Apple, you know, 
truther, right? And I really believe that you should build it in native um, Objective-C and eventually Swift, I guess. Um, and um, I, you know, I don't know how much difference it made for the app. You know, I think it was more performant. I also think Chris and Andrew took it as an opportunity to redesign the app, uh, totally. which, which was smart. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I built the, the infatuation iPhone app. Um, I think it got pretty big. Like that yeah. was probably one of your first real, like, Oh yeah, that um, was, that was by far the most popular piece of software I had ever <laughs> built. Like, <laughs> like on day one. Uh, and yeah, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what the order of magnitude was in usage, but certainly hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people, um, which was great. And, you know, thankfully, I, I also got paid some money for that. So I was able to survive on, you know, my startup life with James for for another couple of months. And then, yeah, James and I, as I said, were sort of kept launching iPhone apps, a lot of which were games in many cases. Yeah, what were yeah. they? Like, what, what are the ones that didn't work out that we never heard about? God, I mean, we kind of built like a Substack type app initially because we started out in the sort of media. So we we built like an RSS reader that was built around authors. So you could follow individual authors and get like their content into your your feed, essentially. But you didn't have to understand how RSS worked. Um you know, so you, you didn't have to understand all the crazy web stuff you had to do to, to get a nice reader application. We just built it on the authors. What was that called? That was called Volley. Uh, yeah, very oh, the, wow. yeah, original. Um, we also built um, we built a once a day trivia game that happened every day at noon uh, called Street Trivia, um, where it was like a true or false quiz. Then um, it was massively multiplayer simultaneous. Um, and this was a couple of years before HQ Trivia. Um, but you know they obviously executed it one thousand times better because they had they had video and they had prizes. Um, but but again, like James and I have always been obsessed with this like once a day, twenty four hour clock thing. I don't know. We just think that you know timers are fun for whatever stupid reason. So we launched another timer based trivia app. Why do you think? Because um, I remember I remember that app, and obviously I remember HQ, and I think there were some others at the time, like. Why did that happen? And why does that happen? Why is there this flurry of activity that often happens around an idea and then sort of one breaks through? In, in this case, it was HQ. For the record, we worked on ours for about a year and then shut it down. And then HQ launched like six or nine months later. Like so that we were we were completely out of the market before HQ launched. Like okay. we, we had given up on the idea. Um, and I mean... Why did you know? Why did they do better? I mean, the video element was huge. I mean, just having it be like a game show with a host was an incredible like innovation, and also just like the technical execution was awesome. And then I, I mean, we were always talking about money, money being the key to really hooking people into a live game show, right? Like giving away money, like is just inherently compelling. You know, I mean, look at like the lottery or whatever, right? I mean, it's just like money makes game shows fun as a participant, right? And we literally just didn't have enough money to pay anything more than our rent. So we would always argue about like, could we do $100 for one show and just see if that worked? Like, or could we do $100, you know, could we do $500 once a month? Then would that be enough? You know, we, we were like, we were just, we knew money mattered, but we just really couldn't do it. And we couldn't convince ourselves it mattered enough to just give away like this very, very little money that we had at the time because we had no fundraising. We were going on our savings and infatuation, you know, writing code for other people and stuff. So like, we just didn't have enough money to do money. And I think that was like really important. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> we didn't have enough money to do money. Yeah. We knew money mattered. We just couldn't figure out if it mattered enough to like burn down our savings, like to do it, you know? Yeah. Um, so that was really, really important. Um, 
And then, yeah. And then, so we kept building games and we, 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 we really enjoyed building street trivia and we just got more and more into the game space. And we started building relevant to this conversation, um, chat based games. So we were, we were always excited about this idea of like conversational, you know, natural language interfaces. And I don't know, I'm sure you remember the Facebook messenger platform was like a big thing in like 2015 and 2016. Right. So, so we built chatbots, chatbots. Yeah. First wave of chatbots. First wave of chatbots is 15, (laughs) 16, uh, for those who are alive that long ago. Um, and, uh, and, and, and so we were building chatbot games because we were like, oh, this is great. Like conversational interface is a sort of new way to play games. Um, you know, there's, it's, you know, blue ocean, no one's competing here. Like we're going to build chatbot games. So we built a version of straight trivia for chat actually. And then we also built, um, we built a virtual pet game, like a little Tamagotchi that you could chat with, right? Like, well, you'd get a little Pokemon and like it would hatch from an egg and you would like to chat with it, defeat it. And it would like, you know, ask you for help and tell you stories and stuff. And like, it was pretty cool, but, um, it wasn't like wildly immersive, right? I mean, in the end you were in, you were in a text message window, which was sort of a bizarre user interface. Right. And, um, but, you know, it did have pretty decent retention because you would just sort of text people every day, like you got to feed your pet, right? Um, but it didn't have any way to monetize. Um, so, yeah. Qu- quick question about that era of chatbots. And, and, and maybe this is obvious, um, but, but, but for my, my benefit and the audiences as well, um, obviously, you know, ChatGPT and these new, these new chatbots, these new chat interfaces based on large language models you know, use a form of, of AI that do sort of like predictive creation of kind of the next word or next element of the conversation, you know, in the, in this sort of, uh, Facebook messenger era of chatbots, like what was the big technological difference? Was it, was it all sort of like rules-based? Like if the person says X say Y, if yeah, can you talk us through that? Like the difference between 2015 chatbot and 2023 chatbot? Yeah. So the big leap forward that enabled 2015 chatbots was what we call like natural language processing, um, which is still a big part of the modern kind of AI wave. Um, but natural language processing was essentially taking, you know, a fairly arbitrary human string of text, like, or you, you and I saying something in the way we would say it to someone else. Like we'd say like, you know, like, Oh, you know, feed my pet, um, 10 kibbles or whatever. Right. And in real human life, you can say that in like thousands of different ways, right? You can say like, ah, oh, like give my pet 10, 10 more pieces of food. You can say, give my pet, you know, 10 more, you know, kibbles and bits, whatever. Like there's, there's sort of an amazing amount of variation in just the sort of just basic amount of text that we say as humans or that we type as humans. But natural language processing was this big leap forward in sort of distilling meaning from that sort of infinite variation of, of text, right? It was like, okay, this person could say this like plausibly a thousand different ways, but in the end, like the goal is they want to feed the pet 10 kibbles or whatever, or 10 pieces of food, right? And that distillation of meaning from language was, was natural language processing. And that was what enabled the first wave of chatbots and also Alexa, um, which I'm sure we'll get to like Alexa and, and, you know, Siri to some degree were enabled by, you know, those things would basically be unusable if you had to say the commands in a very certain way. Right. Um, and so natural language processing was the big step forward for, for the first wave of chatbots. And, and it's still pretty important. Um, especially if you're doing any sort of specialized use case, um, you know, for a chat interface. Um, and then, you know, I'm sure we'll talk more about later, but large language models really changed the game on the generative side of things on the creation of content, which we had to write all the content for the app. Right. And, and you could write it, 
Um, so it could vary in some ways. So the pet could say the same thing, you know, 20 different ways, or that, you know, they could, there could be variables within the output of what the pet would say back to you. Um, so it didn't sound like they were just saying the same thing robotically over and over and over again. Um, but that was all based on like code and, and loops and, and just text that we had to write. So, um, you, you couldn't just ask, you couldn't just ask, um, you know, on a large language model, give me, give me 50 different ways to say like, thanks for the food, you know, <laughs> um, right. which you can today. So it sounds like NLP was sort of a big leap forward on the kind of synthesis of input from the human, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. whereas large language models, obviously also, also that, but more so on the sort of outputs response and the output and the generative, generative mm-hmm. output, um, mm-hmm. based on all the data it's sort of trained on, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I would say in general, like the whole first wave of, of AI tools or at the time we called them machine learning tools or deep learning tools. But in, in retrospect, maybe they're now all AI tools. But, um, you know, things as simple as like Facebook guessing who was in your photo. Right. And trying to get you to tag your friend. Right. Um, or or the Facebook news feed itself, which was, you know, algorithmically um, generated based on what content they thought you would like and what you engaged in the past. Right. That whole first wave was really around processing just immense volumes of data uh, using machine learning models or AI models, and then, you know, putting out something logical on sort of the other end of the equation, which in the Facebook newsfeed case would be, you know, what content this person most wants to see or most wants to engage with. So, so we sort of had these algorithms that were like, were, could do things humans couldn't do, um, like personalize a newsfeed for 2 billion people, right? Obviously not possible for a human. Um, but it wasn't the sort of like creativity that's sort of analogous to human creativity, which is what we see today with with large language models and image generation models. Yeah. All right. So you're so you're dabbling with uh, Facebook Messenger apps, chatbots, uh, trivia apps, tri- trivia chatbots, I guess, and and uh, pets, and you know, a couple of pets. Things. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so take us take us through that. Yeah. So we're dabbling with that. We got a little bit of growth. It wasn't that exciting, and then you know big moment in, in my life was got got my first Amazon Echo Alexa device and started playing around with it. Um, it's for my parents for my birthday. And, um, you know, I started playing around with it and asked it to play music and, you know, telling it to play Spotify from 15 feet away. Um, and it like worked. And um, for anyone who had used Siri or any other voice system at the time, uh, the leap forward of Alexa, like cannot really be overstated how much better it was. Yeah. I mean, like, it seems boring in retrospect, but being able to talk to a speaker from 10 feet away and say something in a pretty arbitrary way and have it actually do it was like maybe not an iPhone moment, but it was like a 60% of an iPhone moment. It was like, oh my God, <laughs> like this is like, this is nuts. Like voice recognition actually works finally. Like it, it didn't work a year ago and now it works. Um, and so... James and I got really excited about that, and we realized there was a developer platform on Alexa, and so we were like, "Why don't we take all these chat ideas we have for uh, for Facebook Messenger and, and start just making them voice versions and see if that's fun, right?" And so we did it as a weekend hack project. Um, I think the first game we launched was a spelling bee game, like like hmm. the Scripps National Spelling Bee, um, which was a terrible idea because uh, they were not very good at recognizing individual letters. So I was going to say, I feel like it needs to, it needs to have like a very high degree of accuracy for that to work. Yeah. Yeah. Like B, C, D, P, like T are all pretty hard for that thing to recognize, especially in 2015 or or I guess it was 17 at the time. Um, And um, 
So that was a bad idea. But the second idea we launched was a storytelling game, um, kind of like a little bit of a heritage from our pet app, but um, it was a choose your own adventure, interactive fiction, medieval times kind of game called Yes Sire, where you would like be the the lord of, of a medieval castle and you would make decisions. Um, and it was all based on yes, no answers because we knew those would work like 100% of the time. And we wrote, you know, we wrote all the content. Um, you know, uh, my brother actually helped out on some of the content because he was an uh, aspiring screenwriter. Um, and that kind of was like, Insofar as we had ever had a hit, that was like a hit. Like we got 10,000 users in like the first month or something on that um, with like no marketing or anything. Um, And we were like, oh, wow. Okay. This is like the most successful thing we've ever done. Uh, Like we're like, (laughs) like, we have to do this. We're like, like, uh, like immediately, like we are Alexa developers. We're like, all right, Right. you know, it happens. Right. And there Um, weren't, and there probably weren't that many back then. So you're you're sort of early mover to a new platform. Right. Exactly. Which, you know, is one of those things that like, startups and VCs always say like, ah, oh, you want to be first mover a new platform. But like, let me just say it sucks. Like it's not fun. Like, <laughs> like it's, it's, it's being an early mover to a new platform that no one believes in is a relentless process of being told that what you're working on is dumb. Like, I mean, it is every investor thinks you're dumb. Every other founder thinks you're dumb. Like, you know, even the platform is sort of suspicious of like why people are even doing this. Like Alexa itself was like, why are, why are people building these apps? Like, 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 um, like, it's it's just a process of like every day giving having conversations with people where like they're like yeah like why are you doing this like like why do you why are you building Alexa games like who gives a crap about this right um, and you know we were just like I don't know it's fun and we have a lot of users like we don't have like a good people answer. are gonna buy these things we <laughs> believe people are gonna buy these things I'm sure that's what that was going through your head well we were like we were like we think we can monetize these because. Um, Actually, at that time, we had gotten a couple investors, um, including one of them was uh, one of the best game investors in the world, a guy named Gigi Levy-Weiss. And um, he has funded like 10 different $1 billion gaming companies. So he really is like one of the best gaming investors in the world. And he knows a lot about gaming, as you can imagine. And we would have these sessions with him where he would sit down and teach us like the ins and outs of gaming and, and, and how to monetize games as well. So we had talked to him enough where we were like, you know, there is kind of a formula to monetizing gaming. You just have to like, we just had to hold out for the platform to enable us to, to make money on these games. Um, and so we um, we held out, which t- took two years, by the way. Uh, and we built a bunch of other games and made our existing games better um, and launched a few pretty successful concepts, including like a music trivia game called Song Quiz, which is like name that tune. Um, a number of other storytelling games uh, that did pretty well. Um, we launched kind of like a couple like game show knockoffs. Like we launched a, a Prices Right one called Price Tag, um, which was you know guessing guessing prices um, and a couple other like pretty crazy ideas. But we had a I had a suite of games by like 2019 that we thought okay at least. If any of these can monetize, like we'll have a real company, basically. Um, and and then also screen devices started to launch for Echoes, which was a big deal. Like, you, you know, you had a five to ten inch screen on your Alexa. And so um, that let us make more immersive experiences because then you don't have to say literally everything out loud for the, the user to use the product. Um, and, you know, simultaneously, the whole kind of AI stack got better. I mean, speech recognition kept getting better. Natural language processing kept getting better. Um synthesis, which we haven't really talked about, but creating AI voices essentially um, got better and better um, where we could have characters in our games. Um, 
and we were just getting better at, at designing the games and figuring out how voice user interfaces worked even. So, um, so we held out until 2019, started making a little bit of money in late 2019. And we're like, oh my gosh, like this, this could be it. Like Do, doing what, like it, what are what are you selling with these? Are you selling levels, you know, song packs? Yeah. We experimented with a few different things. We experimented with, um, like in story games, we experimented with, um, what they call like premium choices. Like, um, you know, there was this whole wave of story games on mobile where you would make like the better choice in a, in an interactive story, like the cooler choice, like you get the better sword or you get the better like outfit or whatever. Um, and you could sell that for money actually. Um, like people would pay a couple bucks to like have the cooler sword, you know, in order to have the game be more fun. And then, yeah. And like music, we would, um, we experimented with like more song packs, that kind of thing. Um, we eventually sort of figured out like a subscription business model, which took a little bit where we were like giving you lots of additional stuff for like one monthly subscription. Um, and that ended up being like where we still are today. Uh, that ended up working pretty well because the games are pretty content driven. So like more stories is good when you're playing a story game and like more trivia questions is good when you're playing a trivia game. So like, people were sort of conceptually on board with, with the subscription, um, our customers. So that is kind of, you know, where, how we got to where we are today. Um, just building that subscription business and, and making those games better. And I guess, you know, by being on these platforms from day one and these platforms have gotten pretty big now. I mean, like, I feel like most people I know have one of these speakers, whether it's an Alexa or Google home, um, you have a pretty big footprint now uh, of users. Yeah. I mean, we have, we have many millions of monthly users. Um, and I mean, I think lifetime we have like over 30 or 40 million, like people who've tried one of our games or something. So you have like almost like 10% of Americans have like played one of my games at some point, which is like pretty mind blowing. Um, <laughs> that is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Song quiz um, is a major hit in my household, <laughs> by the way. And it's not just because uh, I know the founder. Um, no, my kids love it. Seriously. Thank you. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, in the sort of fast forward in the last couple of years, we've been able to do some game show, some real game shows. So we actually run the Jeopardy game, um, Wheel of Fortune, a few other ones. So those are also quite popular. Um, our storytelling games are still pretty popular. So, um, and to your point, Alexa and Google, I think are in like 45% of us households or something coming up on 50. I mean, Alexa, just, just Alexa, I think has like 200 plus million devices sold at this point and in use. So, um, so they're pretty big. I mean, they're not, they're not the iPhone again, but they're pretty big, you know? And I understand that you're, you're also now starting to, you mentioned that you're on screen devices like the Alexa show and things like this, but now you're, you're actually migrating to television, connected TVs, yeah, Yeah, LG devices, Samsung devices. This is pretty fascinating to me, actually, because, um, you know, going back to the video game stuff that we talked about in the beginning, N64, PS2, I mean, from from that era of gaming, and this, you know, this still exists today, you have to buy these consoles. But the interesting thing about these connected TVs is like, they're effectively gaming platforms now and you're right. and you're now providing providing content to these gaming platforms that people have by default when they buy a TV. Yeah, I mean, the amazing thing is basically every TV is a computer now, right? Right. And conveniently for me, almost all like the majority of TVs are now voice powered computers actually. Like almost, you know, the average TV in the United States has a voice remote where with a microphone and I think 90% of new TVs have have microphones now. So, um kind of like this like backdoor technology shift has happened, which is that like every TV is essentially a giant echo show device, like in every household in America. Um, and 
with an app store. Yeah, with an app store, with like with the CPU, GPU. Like, I mean, it's like a re- it's an actual computer. It's not a very good computer, but it's like it's good enough like to run whatever you need to run. Um, and basically, no one's really figured out how to like do anything other than play video on these things, really, like at scale. Um, and even some of the gaming stuff that's happening there is what we call like cloud stream gaming, which is essentially like playing a video of a game running on someone else's computer and then like getting the latency short enough that um, it seems like you're playing a game, right? Oh, interesting. Yeah. The problem is that the CPUs in these, in these TVs are pretty cheap. They're pretty small, right? So they can't actually run like a PlayStation five game. Like they can't, they just don't have the power, but you can run a PlayStation five game on an underground box, an underground computer it's in Virginia, which is what we would call a server, right? And um, and then just stream a video of that game over the air to the person playing the game. And then when they do something on their controller, it sends that signal all the way out to Virginia. And the thing happens on the game playing in Virginia. And then you get video stream back of what you just happened in Virginia. And I say Virginia because that's where AWS's big server farm is. Yeah. But, but it could be Oregon, whatever. It's not that many places. Um and amazingly, we have fast enough communication systems that this like kind of works. Like it's still, you know, latency is a big issue for cloud stream games, like a big issue, especially with things that are like supposed to be super fast paced, like a shooter game or something like that. But it kind of works if latency isn't like life or death for you, um, which is what people are doing on TVs right now. But what we're doing is something much more straightforward, which is we're essentially just running a voice game, you know, on Roku, you can play Jeopardy and it puts a big Jeopardy board up on the screen and you can, you know, hit the voice remote and say, you know, give me U.S. capitals for 200, Alex. And, you know, the clue comes up and you say, like, what is Sacramento? Right. And it's like playing Jeopardy. And we don't have this super heavy lift from a game, you know, rendering perspective. So we can actually run it like on your device or very close to your device and stream it very quickly. So that's really, really cool. You can actually play Jeopardy on your TV where you also watch Jeopardy. Yeah. How is it going? I I think this is relatively new for you guys, right? Yeah. I mean, we really dug into it like nine or 10 months ago um, and it's growing really fast. It's, I mean, it's by far the fastest growing part of our business. And I mean, that's not to say, you know, the the sort of smart speaker business isn't growing fast because it is, but the TV thing's really blowing up. And I think like, you know, I just think we 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 figured out how to make voice games on screen devices, and then you know, a, a fifty to eighty inch screen just offers this really immersive canvas for voice games, so you can make them even better. And voice as an interface is sort of intuitive and accessible to everyone. Whereas, you know, maybe if you're a gamer like us, or whatever, you can figure out how to use the controller and you know, play Elden Ring or whatever. But a lot of people can't, right? There's this huge, like what we would call like a casual gaming audience, which just wants to like pick something up, play for fun, play with their family, like, you know, have a cool Saturday night and then like put it away. And maybe they come back like a couple times a month, but it's not like a lifestyle. It's not eight hours a day. It's not, um, they don't have time to like level up on a controller, right? You know, maybe they have kids. Like I have a kid now. I'm not like playing a lot of controller based video games anymore. Um, and so this, we really believe there's this massive casual gaming opportunity on television that has not really been captured by anyone um, because all the gaming on TV that happens is on consoles. And it's sort of what, what we would call more like hardcore gaming. Right. And so I, you know, to come back to the AI discussion, I just think that the whole voice AI stack enables this really natural form of communication, which I'm sure you've talked to lots of other folks about all these other things that they think AI are going to do for people's lives. But 
I really think it's like the best way to control games because it's 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 accessible to everyone from three years old, you know, all the way up to to grandparents, right? And um, everyone knows how to talk. You and I are talking right now. I mean, like, um, it's it's easy and fun and and immersive, right? Um, yeah, it's a common interface that yeah. that anyone can 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 adopt through that lens. I mean, it's 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 really clear that kind of Volley has been an AI company kind of all along. I, I think, and and again, we're going to get into this. I think you're probably becoming even more of an AI company, but it really couldn't have existed without AI for for the voice aspect, for the the NLP aspect that we discussed early on. It's it's pretty fascinating, like how ahead of <laughs> the time Volley was. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but, but maybe not without without re- at least I I didn't realize it at the time. <laughs> well, I think we just like really had this magical moment where we were talking to the Alexa back in 2017 and we're like, oh, this is like, when this works, this is the best way to use a computer, right? And the caveat was always the parentheses of like, when this works, right? Um, And so I think a lot of people were like, they had a bad experience with Siri or they had a bad experience with Alexa or it didn't do all the things they wanted to do. And like, those are totally valid concerns. But James and I always believed like, okay, well, if we can build games that work on these systems, like, voice control is the most fun way to play games, especially like for a live multiplayer setting, you know, family game night, party game, you know, or just like, you know, in the background or you're like cooking or cleaning or whatever. Right. It's like, right. It's super fun to like yell out answers or like, or like yell at the medieval knight to go do your bidding or whatever. Right. Like it's fun. It's just the way you actually interact with the world. And, and, you know, while we're all like on our little tiny, like phones in our hands all the time, like, that is not the way we actually interact with the world, right? And and I always think that technology like evolves to sort of suit human like needs, the way humans actually behave and are sort of like wired to behave. And you know, we obviously spend every day you, you know using our hands to you know open doors and and you know read books and you know cook things or whatever. But we spend a lot of our days talking and listening. Yeah. And while the computers were not good at that yet. Um, they got a lot better in the last five or six years. And I would say we're kind of turning the corner literally as we speak to them being about as good as a human at that, which is huge, obviously. Speaking of not being good enough yet, why, why is why is Siri not as good as ChatGPT? <laughs> why is Alexa and, and Google not as good as ChatGPT yet? Like, like if I could talk to ChatGPT on my Alexa device... I mean, think of how much better that would be. Uh, why has that not happened yet? It feels like it should have happened eight months ago. For starters, these are big companies, right? So ChatGPT launched 10 months ago, right? So, or 11, 11 months ago? I don't know, 10 or 11 months ago. I think it was November, late November. So we're still 10 months into ChatGPT. So like, they are big companies. They don't move that quickly. Um, Amazon, I think literally last week, essentially announced that they're putting their own version of ChatGPT into Alexa. Um, okay. It's not going to be like live for everyone tomorrow or whatever, but it'll probably be live for everyone in you know six months or something, right? So Amazon is putting their own version of ChatGPT into Alexa. I'm sure Google is going to replace Google Assistant with ChatGPT version of Google Assistant. Bard I don't, or I don't know what timeline they're going to do it on. Yeah, Bard or Gemini or whatever Gemini, it's called. Yeah, like, yeah. It's kind of a new name. I feel like they have it's a new name by next month. You know, I don't know, whatever. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. Maybe it'll just be called Google Assistant, but the good version right. now. I don't know. Um, and and uh, and then Apple, you know, Apple always takes their time with these things, right? And um, I especially think Apple takes time with like web-based service initiatives, yeah. right? I mean, they're not... They are in the end like a hardware and software company, like you know, on on a local device, not a 
they're they're not truly like a cloud company in the way that that Google and, and Amazon are, right? So right. I bet next year we'll get it. But Apple operates on one-year timescales. I think it'll probably be announced in June at their developer conference, and it'll probably go live in September with the next version of the iPhone, would be my bet. I have no information on this, but that would just be my guess. Um, I think they're struggling with the problem. To give them like one modicum of credit versus ChatGPT is there's a little bit of an innovator's dilemma where ChatGPT can just like do some really dumb stuff and it's okay, like because they'll fix it or it's a startup or whatever, right? Like, you know, obviously... We talk a lot about hallucination, like inventing facts, right? That's like Apple cannot conscience a Siri that's just making crap up, right? They, yeah, that's they, really dangerous yeah, for yeah, them, yeah, especially that is when like, their whole brand is based on like trust and trust, security. It and, just yeah. works, quote unquote, right? Yeah. It, it just works. It has to work. They can't have hallucination. Right. So they can't have hallucination. So that's a big problem. Um, the other big problem is, you know, Apple and Amazon in particular, and Google to some degree, are... The value in Siri and in Alexa is that they can do actual stuff for you, right? Like that you mm. want to do, not just like they can ans- take, take actions. Yeah, they can take actions. They can't just, I mean, for what it's worth, like I love ChatGPT, but it's like, what is it really good at? It's good at like cheating on homework and like making, you know, making up po- poetry and like writing your memo for you or, you know, summarizing some document or something, right? Like, it, you know, or like, uh, you know, Sexbot chat or whatever is is a popular use case of these chatbot interfaces, right? So, like, those aren't really things that Alexa do for people. Alexa right. do for people, or that Siri does for people, right? right um, Alexa turns on my lights. It plays turn, Spotify. Yeah, plays Spotify. Does the weather? Does the weather? It answers Wikipedia questions for you. You know, but maybe that's because yeah. that's what it's been limited to, right? Like, totally. If it had more capabilities, I might use it for other things, right? Oh yeah. All I'm saying is they need the next version of these to AIs to do that stuff still. Right. Right. They want it to be as good as ChatGPT, but also when you say play Taylor Swift on Spotify, it needs to play Taylor Swift on Spotify. Like you can't just like be like, Oh, I'm, I think you're in the mood for like Adele because I, <laughs> I just hallucinated or whatever. Right. Like, you know, you're like, it can't like, and then the sort of like intersection between it has to do certain stuff like really accurately. And, um, it has to be as creative and flexible and fun as ChatGPT is um is a sort of intersection that I think all these companies are trying to navigate right now. And it's a little bit harder than just launching ChatGPT where you can just do whatever you want and nobody cares if you just make crap up. Makes sense. So uh, a little while ago in the conversation, you mentioned that, um, you know, your content, Volley's content is is stories. It's new questions. It's song packs. It's. And if you rewind to, you know, a year ago when sort of the generative AI meteor kind of struck Earth, you know, it was all about (laughs) creating content, right? New content, new images, new stories, poems, as you said. And so uh, it strikes me that the technology uh, that generative AI affords a company like Volley is probably game changing for your company in that now you can sure. you can basically have unlimited content for your games. Talk, talk to us about this breakthrough and this realization because I have to imagine it's completely changed the trajectory of Volley. Yeah, it's really crazy. I mean, I think we're still processing like how powerful it is internally. It's almost like, I mean, again, like you said, it's like a meteor a little bit. It's like, whoa, okay, we need to like rethink the way we do almost everything around content, right? Yeah. And I think there's like sort of three levels of how exciting this generative content thing is for, for a company like ours. That's, that's really driven by content in a lot of ways. Right. Um, one is the sort of like simple, obvious thing, which is like, okay, instead of writing 
prices right descriptions. Now we're going to have ChatGPT write our prices right descriptions, right? And we're still going to have a human review them because we want them to be accurate and we want descriptions them to be good. of what? Sorry, like it's like um okay, you uh, you have a water bottle right off Amazon and you write a silly description about like this water bottle will change your day, especially if you're right. thirsty, like you know whatever, like uh, something like, they might say about the bottle right, on prices right, like, right. Yeah, yeah, it's orange for no reason other than that was what was left on Amazon, you know right. whatever, ha ha ha, right? A human would normally write that for you, a human being, a human you know has written all this stuff. I mean, I wrote some of them in the early days. Um, James did as well. And, Cri- and the, the Crimson op- experience. Coming yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Really, you know, <laughs> using my journalism uh, background. Um, and and now you're like, OK, well, I can have ChatGPT write those basically. And then we can have a human like review them. Right. We can, you know, because you want to make sure they're right. You want to make sure they're funny. You want to edit them. There is still value in like editing. Right. Um, in many cases. Um, so that's like phase one, which is like, oh, cool. Like. This is enhancing the creativity of um, our content team for the sort of really obvious applications. Um, That's like super exciting and I think very valuable, but maybe like only, you know, a small step forward from where we are today. Um, I think like the next level up, like level two is um, essentially personalized content for every customer, right? So Hmm. let's, you know, to use the prices right example, it's like we write a description in real time. for Mike based on like what he, we think he likes or what he thinks is funny. And we like train it on his past use. Right. Or we like AB test, we AB test a hundred different descriptions, the same item, you know, generated in real time. And then we, you know, edit them down to the top five. And then we figure out what player profiles really like that certain type of item description and make them likely to continue playing or, or give us a good review or, or eventually like pay, pay for something. Right. Um, and so there's, there's this idea of like, instead of there being one item description for the water bottle, there is an item description of the water bottle for every single person who plays the game, right? Mm. And it's like, and and that is expensive today with GPT, you know, running the, every single one of those queries differently for each person. But I think in three to five years, that's like obviously going to be the case. Like maybe it won't be 100% personalized to every single person, but you will be running like essentially hundreds, if not thousands of simultaneous tests on, um, on what, you know, what we'd call copy, right. The writing and the content in the game. Um, and they're already about to do this on ads, like on Facebook and Google basically. Hmm, Right. Because like anytime there's like money involved, you can really get people motivated pretty quickly and like better, better ad descriptions. Optimization. Yeah. yeah, Optimization. Better ad descriptions are worth a lot to Amazon and, and, and sorry, to Facebook and Google and Amazon and all those folks. So um, that'll be sort of phase one of like massive personalization of ad copyright. Um, and I think, yeah, there's an interesting question as to whether like all content like five years from now is personalized, essentially, like everything you see on your TikTok feed, everything you see on your Twitter, everything you see on like Instagram, you know, probably not at the level of every TV show being personalized to you in five years, but maybe in 10 years, uh, it is like, like, will there be the concept of like a single piece of content anymore or will we all get custom like movies and tv shows and like you know like like, i don't know that's a little crazier idea that might be a little farther out but you could see a world in which every piece of entertainment that you see is personalized to you right and then i think the last level for volley um is sort of an evolution of of that personalization which is which is conversation with ai characters right and it's that you know, we we built these games where you're a knight running a medieval castle, right? But um, but 
in the end, we had to write everything in the game. And, and even when you interacted with a character like the Wicked Witch, you know, we, we would it would be like a screenplay, right? You would be interacting with her and maybe there were a few different forks you could go down. But like in the end, you were still kind of on on rails, like on a train track. Right. And um, now, you know, we can we can prompt GPT to imagine a Wicked Witch character in, in a storytelling experience and you can just talk to the wicked witch and, and, you know, you can ask her any question you could possibly think of and she will respond in the character of the wicked witch. Right. And, and we can give her like goals. We can say like, okay, like your goal is to like make sure the customer understands that they need to go get this potion to like pass the next level or something. Right. Like, and so she'll keep like trying to bring the conversation back to like, ah, and you want to, talk about potions like you know <laughs> like 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 even if you're talking about something else right um and that is sort of like i mean it's a variation on personalized content but i think setting apart the concept of characters of, of imaginary you know people or or animals or whatever that you can just chat with and ask essentially any question is also like completely life-changing for gaming and entertainment right um i mean it's hard to imagine that in gaming you know, we call we have this concept of non-player characters, so NPCs, yep. like the things you would run into in a game that you can you can go on a mission with or talk to or get something from, whatever. It's hard to imagine like five years from now that every NPC in like every game isn't essentially some you know there isn't some LLM powering that because like there's a company dedicated to this uh, know, in yeah, worlds. Yeah, I know, yeah. I know. You guys, yeah, you guys invested in one of these companies, yes. it's building the tools there, and like you know. Yeah, maybe they're like the picks and shovels company there, and we're like the we're the we're trying to dig for gold, you know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so of these three levels, and I guess level yeah. one being like creating copy around in game out game elements, level two being sort of personalized experiences, level three being sort of uh, in game characters that are intelligent. Which of these things are you doing today, and to sort of what degree? I would say level one, we're we're like pretty aggressively R and Ding right now, like where we're you know like. I don't know if we have any copy in production that's that's AI generated, but like, I think we probably will in the next two to three, you know, one to two months, let's say, whatever. I don't want to like engineering timelines always slip and everything, but yeah, like, yeah, course. let's let's say before the end of this year, we will almost certainly have like AI generated copy in production in, in a number of titles. So that's pretty cool. Um, level two, the personalized one is sort of interesting because we're like thinking about, well, first of all, it's really expensive if you really do it at scale. Right. So you have to like, come up with some sort of middle ground where you're like, you can personalize content occasionally to really provide the user some like added benefit. But, um, but you can't really do it all the time yet because it's just too expensive with, with how much these LLMs cost. So that's one where we are, we're, ex we're experimenting with letting like users like generate content within an experience upon request that, that is personalized. Like one idea we have is like letting users generate trivia questions in a category of their choice. Right. Um, and that basically works. And so I think we can do that. We just need to get the like UI UX in the right place. Um, and, and make sure that the customer's getting a real value out of like some sort of user generated content that's like mediated by an AI. Um, so I won't guarantee that'll happen this year, but I, I would be shocked if we don't have that live in the next six to 12 months, right? In some fashion. Um, and then characters like, 
we're definitely doing and I would expect to have live by the end of the year as well. So, um, Oh, wow. So that you're okay. When you said level one, level two, level three, I assume level three is like furthest in the future, but it sounds like I wasn't saying the level of difficulty necessarily, I guess I was saying the level of like complexity of the interaction, I guess. And I, I think of characters as the most complex interaction, but it's also like in some ways, one of the easiest things to do because you don't have to structure the output that much. Like it just has to act like the character. Right. Right. I mean, we have some issues with it that I think companies like Inworld are trying to solve, for example, like, you know, these things have issues tracking just like pieces of data that can't change. Like, 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 like if the user has like, you know, in a virtual pet game, if the user has like five kibbles for, for whatever reason, these large language models just will keep changing it to like four to they're six. They're bad to, like, with numbers, yeah, right? Yeah, they're really this bad the with numbers. Even, yeah. Like on ChatGPT, <laughs> right. like it very assuredly gives me the answer to a math problem. And then when I tell it it's wrong, it sort of assuredly corrects itself to another wrong answer, uh, which is pretty funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we'll be like, the customer has five kibbles and they'll be like, cool, you have four kibbles left. And you're like, why did you do that? And you're like, what? And like, they're not, I don't know. Anyway, it's not that level three is harder. It's just that it's more, it's a, it's a more complex customer interaction. Like in some right. ways, level two is the hardest because that, that expense around personalization is, is really high. What about just like, um, is this part of level one? Just say like, writing new jeopardy questions yeah i would say that's level one yeah just that's writing new jeopardy one. questions and For the you're record, not doing I'm, stuff like that yet just like creating content sort of generatively we, we are doing that not in jeopardy um jeopardy, okay, okay. Jeopardy, jeopardy you have to uh you know they have a very strong brand and ip right right yeah, right yeah, sorry yeah, bad, bad yeah, example yeah, yeah, yeah that but in seems our, in like our, the most i'm sorry to cut you off yeah, like no. to me that sounds like the biggest opportunity for efficiency gains right it is you know just taking like human powered writing and just handing that over to the AI. Really powerful. Um, I think in the end, you end up doing a fair amount of editing because like, you know, we have, I don't know, justifiably high standards on the content that goes out into our games. And so, you know, you end up with efficiency gains for sure, but you don't end up with like ludicrous efficiency gains because you do kind of have to edit every piece and editing every piece takes some time. So, you know, it's like a nice, like, 25 to 50% efficiency gain or something, but it's not like a 10 X or something. So what do you end up editing? Like, what do you, is it making mistakes? Is it like the tone? What is it? Yeah. I mean, mistakes, tone, sometimes you can have trouble getting these LLMs to be sort of like edgy and funny. Like it Mm. depends if you prompt well, you can, but I'm sure you've experienced with, with GPT that it's, it's kind of just like banal and boring sometimes. Like you're like, just like, I've tried to get it to write screenplays for me. I kept trying to get it to write me like a sequel to Goodfellas. And I just can't, <laughs> I couldn't really get it to do it. You know, it just keeps like, it keeps turning the story back to this like very positive, like, you know, oh, and they were all friends in the end interaction or whatever. Like, and you're like, no, like Goodfellas is about like betrayal and murder and drugs. And like, you know, it's like, you know, why were you doing this bother? Was well, this just for fun? Like one day I'm like, Hey, I'm yeah, gonna- this was just for fun. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I, I think James and I were just like brainstorming about like, Oh, what can I do? And we we're like screenplay. And I was, and James had mentioned to me that it was like having a lot of trouble being like dark and edgy. And so I was like, all right, let's do like, let's do a mafia movie. Right. You know? So, um, I wonder if that's intentional on OpenAI's part. Like they want to make it safe. You know, yeah. I think, I think it, it definitely is for safety reasons. Cause I think everyone got pretty freaked out by like the, the whole Microsoft Bing going crazy yes. debacle and everything. That was so, wild. So now it's yeah. very like, it's, you know, it's just a little bit boring. It's a little bit safe. It's a little bit like, uh, banal. I don't know. It just isn't, it doesn't feel super original sometimes. And it isn't obviously. Um, but 
I think that'll improve over time. So you, you just have to edit stuff for that. How is this all impacting sort of your planning going forward around, you know, game production or new platforms or budgeting or hiring? Like, has this really sort of kind of infected your entire company and, and strategy moving forward? Yeah, definitely. It has infected our entire strategy moving forward. I still think like any company, you're like, well, we had stuff we wanted to get done this year and we're still going to try to get that done. Like, you know, before GPT, like, hit, you know, hit us like a meteor. I mean... I think for almost any new concept we have going forward, it's going to be completely um, in, inflected by these tools, right? I just think that any new game or new mode in a new game or, you know, especially around storytelling and character-driven experiences, um, you know, you just can't not, like, work with these tools and be excited about them. Um, and we have we have a special internal team, you know, the, the task force that's just building you know, new titles around these tools or that's, you know, working to put these tools inside our existing titles in some fashion or another. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's totally uprooted a lot of our planning for what products we're capable of building for next year. So, um, you know, and, and, and as I said, for the end of this year, in some cases. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's like, it's, I mean, it's life-changing, right? I, I mean, we haven't even talked about speech synthesis, which I think is mm, particularly relevant right. for us. Right. I think that like, that's, that's the other piece beyond just, you know, language content. Um, we can now create voices that, you know, you can record your voice into a Roku microphone and with like 30 to 60 seconds of audio, we can synthesize uh mic into a game. And, um, and you know, there's like obvious, easy applications of that. Like we could make you the host of Jeopardy or whatever, uh, <laughs> or we could like make you a character in an RPG game. And like, you know, when you get into battle, it's like talking like you or your friend goes home and plays against you and it, and it talks like you. Right. So, um, the idea that we can synthesize anyone's voice with fairly limited audio, I think is like maybe not relevant to everyone else in, in the AI space, but is like really exciting for Volley. Uh, and so I think that that's another one that's like totally um, infecting all of our development plans because it's just a trip to like upload a minute of your voice and then have a synthesized version of it, like saying random stuff. So I've noticed that a lot of these TVs now also have cameras on them. And I wonder, do you, do you think about video capture as well? Yeah. I mean, that's one where I wish more TVs had cameras on them. Um, because I think we have a lot of great ideas around that, but that, I mean, I mentioned that like the majority of us smart TVs have microphones. I think it's still like under 10% of smart TVs have cameras. Like, I don't know. It's, it's just not, it's not big enough yet, um, but my hope is like three to five years from now it will be or that people will start like the Apple TV will add a camera or something or, or people will start using their phones as like FaceTime cameras on the TV because, yeah, I think there's a lot of cool stuff you can do. I think like we haven't talked about, AI, you know, AR, augmented reality stuff that much, but um, voice controlled augmented reality, I think, is a really interesting canvas where you can say stuff like you know, make a cat, like dance across the screen, like make it have, you know, rainbow tail, like, you know, um, turn me into a, you know, a, uh, uh, an astronaut, you know, put me next to the moon, right? Like you can imagine the voice would be a really cool interface for, for augmented reality experiences. Um, and I think that, I think that Apple actually mentioned in their vision pro demo that voice is going to be a key way you control the, their AR VR headset. So, um, I'm pretty optimistic about voice control, combined with generative tools, combined with, with augmented reality as well. 
Totally. Again, like playing Jeopardy in AR would be sick. Like, I mean, <laughs> it'd be amazing. I mean, or, you know, being in an RPG game and like walking into that, the Wicked Witch and like, she looks like a witch and she talks like a witch and it's like you're in the world with the witch, right? I mean, that, that's going to be nuts. Shifting gears a little bit, you, in addition to Volley, have ha, have become somewhat at the center of, of the AI ecosystem in San Francisco. You and uh, the journalist, Eric Newcomer, who you mentioned earlier, yep. uh, put on this conference called Cerebral Valley. I yep. think you're doing it again. We're doing our second um, one, yeah, November. Talk a little bit about that. What's that been like um, as a project? What's it been like to be near all this, you know, these awesome products and innovators uh, happening right now? What does that feel like? Yeah, I mean, it's been really fun. I mean, so we, our office is in Hayes Valley. Um, I, I'm i sitting in Hayes Valley right now as we speak. Um, San Francisco. San Francisco, yeah. Uh, and there was like this meme on Twitter in like January from um, an investor called Amber Yang, where she said she was going around to all these hacker houses in, in Hayes Valley. And it was where all the all the AI hackers were working. And she's like, oh, people should start calling it like Cerebral Valley. There's so many AI startups here. And it was one of those things where it was like such a silly name that it would like sort of went through the looking glass and like became sort of a funny meme name. Like everyone sort of leaned into it, myself included on Twitter, just being like, yeah, like it's it's great to be like sitting my coffee in the heart of Cerebral Valley today, right? Because it's just like <laughs> such a silly name. I mean, it's just so, it's so nerdy, right? Cerebral Valley. Um, and... So then Eric, yeah, James, Eric, and I all sort of got together and we were talking about doing a conference because we have this giant office in, in Hayes Valley and, you know, pitching out different ideas. And we were like, hey, like, we need to do an AI conference like right now. Like, this is it. Like, this is this is happening. You can just tell it is like the hottest, you know, hottest thing that has happened in Silicon Valley since the iPhone or whatever. Right. And so in like two months, we put together this whole conference, you know, Eric recruited, I think, you know, almost all the speakers, which were amazing. We got, you know, the, the CEOs of like Hugging Face and Replit and Stability and, and Databricks and, and, you know, our team at Volley like ran the whole event. We held it in our office. We like designed all the logos and the swag and like put up the stage and all this stuff. So, um, so we put this event together in, in two months and it was, it was a huge hit because like really no one had like nailed the AI conference in March, like, you know, which sounds like we were too, too late already, but we were, we were kind of just perfectly timing it. And, um, and actually like Databricks bought a company that they met at the after party for wow. $1.3 billion. <laughs> oh, that, uh, yeah, oh, that happened they, at your yeah, conference. Yes. Wow. They met I at the after party. That. Yeah. They met at the after party of Cerebral Valley, uh, one and, uh, ended up, buying company for 1.3 billion dollars mosaic ml and and so we were like wow this is pretty wild like we really nailed this <laughs> and and so you know eric i think really wanted to do another one this year because he's like oh so much has happened this year and we're like yeah sure let's do it again so um uh so this time we're doing it again in mid-november we have you know reed hoffman we have mustafa suleiman um one person i'm excited about is i i got chris latner to come who um is a as a nerd famous person who invented the language Swift uh, that runs on all iPhones and is now um, running a big AI startup called Modular, where he's trying to reinvent the language that people use to, um, you know, program for AI, which is pretty exciting. Um, and so, yeah, it's going to be a really fun conference to be a killer lineup. Um, we have a lot bigger space this time. Last time it was really strictly limited to 200 people. This time it should be like twice the size. So where is it? It's going to be at the the SF Jazz Center, which is literally like a block away. Um and yeah, I mean, I, I think that like, you know, 
we're we're obviously not a foundational model company, but you know we are building on this whole AI stack, and I think we're like you know maybe maybe the most successful AI powered gaming company out there today, and and literally have I think the biggest office in in Cerebral Valley. So we just thought it'd be fun to lean into it and and do the conference, and so far it's it's been working super well. So if people wanted to go to this thing, is it open to the public and how can they do that? You have to apply. Um, yeah, it's it's CerebralValleySummit.com um, and you can apply. And we're we're trying really hard. No offense to the investor side of the table, but we're trying very hard to keep it balanced like towards builders and founders uh, and not just a bunch of VCs. Uh, we had lots of great VCs last time, including, you know, <laughs> from Lightspeed and, and many other firms. Um, but we're trying to like have a little more, uh, you know, a little more balance as far as possible. But um, yeah, and, and tickets are also massively discounted for founders. So um, that's that's a big incentive as well. Nice. What else are you excited about these days besides obviously Volley and and the conference you're putting on? What else is keeping you interested? I mean, you sound really busy. I know you have a young child at home as well. Yeah, I have a young child. That's that's all my free time. <laughs> um, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. Spending spending as much time before and after work with my daughter as I possibly can because it's super fun. Um, I know you have kids as well, so I'm really enjoying that. Um, my wife is a professor at Berkeley and she's doing super great. So that's really exciting. Um I mean, but honestly, I spend like 90, 90% or certainly all my non-family time working, which is, I don't know. I like my jobs. So that's good. Um, but uh, it's it's really all I do. <laughs> Makes it easy. Uh, is is Volley hiring? Um, yeah, we're hiring. We're hiring, um, especially for back-end engineering and a couple of mobile roles as well. Um, we are, uh, you know, one of the things we're really excited about is connecting a mobile app to our, our smart TV experiences. And so you can you know, play Jeopardy on your Roku and then scan a QR code, download an app and then share it with your friends. You can go play Jeopardy against your friend, you know, on the go in the car, or we build that social graph and it can be shared between the smart TV and the phone. So, um, yeah, that's something I'm pretty excited about as well. Um, so yeah, uh, those are, those are the key roles we're hiring for. Um, and of course, anyone who wants to build AI games, um, I mean, we're certainly leaning that way, uh, in terms of searching out folks who have excitement around, you know, generative gaming opportunities, cause that's a, a big thing we're investing for going forward, obviously. And if someone wants to try one of these games, what, what is the quickest <laughs> yeah. and easiest way to do that? And which one should we try? Uh, I mean, if you have an Alexa, I would just say like Alexa Play Song Quiz um, or Alexa Play Jeopardy or or Yes Sire if you want the storytelling game. Um, if you have a Roku or a Fire TV, um, you can search for Jeopardy um, or Volley. Both of those should work. Um, yeah, I mean, that's the easiest way to, to play those games right now. Um, and I mean, also, if you just ask your Alexa device, like, play a game or like, I'm bored, you, you will often end up at one of our games, whether intentionally or not. So um, yeah, I mean, those are all pretty easy ways to do it. Max, this has been so much fun. Uh, as always, always thank you so pleasure. much for doing it and yeah. looking forward to, to having you on again sometime. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. It was great. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Generative Now. Hope you enjoyed my conversation with Max Child. If you like what you heard, please do us a favor and rate and review this podcast. And if you like what you heard, also subscribe and follow us on Spotify, YouTube, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, I am Michael Magnano. If you want to follow me, you can find me at Magnano on all the different platforms. If you want to follow Lightspeed, you can follow us at Lightspeed VP on all the different platforms. And like always, we'll be back next week with another fascinating conversation. 
Generative Now is a production of Lightspeed and Pod People. Special thanks to our production team, which made it all possible. See you next time.